Indie or AAA? AAA. Free to play or pay to play? Pay to play. iOS or Android? iOS. You're listening to Iron Source Level Up with guest host Mishka Katkov. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. I'm Alyssa Zalouf, and I'm joined on the show today by Mishka Katkov, who's head of studio at Rovio, and who's been guest hosting Level Up with us for the past few episodes. I'm also joined by Christoph Carvenius, Head of Insights at Tactile Games. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Today on the show, we're going to be discussing puzzle games. So what makes people play them, how they've evolved, and where they're going in 2019. Now, Mishka, you recently wrote an article on your amazing blog, Deconstructor of Fun, on how to climb to the top of the puzzle category in 2019. So my first question is, Christoph, have you read the article? <laughs> oh, no, I have not. Shame on me. <laughs> Uh, we're working on that, though. It's a we're big one. On it's that. actually a really long one, so don't worry about it. I know, I have plenty of time. So maybe, Christoph, just to kick us off, give us a little bit of background on how did you get into the gaming industry in the first place? Why puzzle games? Tell us your story. Yes. Uh, um, so I've done a lot of varied things. I used to joke that I went from performance marketing to performance art. So when I started my career, I was working with AdWords and uh, performance marketing and such, then made a little foray into culture, after which I got started on the puzzle games into King actually in Stockholm. So games don't count as culture? <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Right. <laughs> no, but I, I worked for King, uh, started there when Bubble Witch Saga was taking off on Facebook. I was at that time mainly doing data analysis on skill games. But this was the time when uh, Candy Crush really started to happen. Uh, so around 2012, 2013. And that was a super interesting experience, of course. And uh, also so introducing a big new audience to puzzle games generally. After that, I've been working a couple of years more. I moved down to Malmö and worked on Petrescu Saga. Did a little int as a global mentoring role for data scientists and then worked with technology at King. And then two years ago now, Tactile Games recruited me uh, to Copenhagen. Chris, can you talk more about Tactile? It's not the most familiar name for the games industry people. Of course, very known company in the Nordics, but... Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's a little bit of a hidden game. So we're an up-and-coming company. Currently are around 70, I think the headcount is. The company has been around for some time, uh, trying various genres like runners and now lately puzzle games. And uh, it was with the, the puzzle games genre that growth started to happen for this studio. Mm. So if we kind of jump in and talk about a little bit more about puzzle games, especially designing the monetization and what I found the most interesting right now is marketability. Can you talk a little bit about the design process and how you kick off a puzzle game because it is a very saturated market and it seems like everything has been tried and it's kind of like now matching together new things yeah i think from our perspective the design process here is tightly coupled to build measure learn cycle from lean startup so it's uh, these iterative cycles that we keep doing some of the kind of core values for us are that we want results to be validated and that's how we can learn all the time to build better puzzle games so do you mean that you have a very strict sort of a prototype process where you try to get really quickly to a playable that you can measure somehow with external markets? Exactly. So can I ask in a more detail, like how long does it take for your project? Let's say you have a team, a small team, prototype team, I would assume a team of between three to five. Am I correct in that? Yeah. yeah. So how, how many weeks do you give that team before they have a first playable that they can start testing in real market? That's a couple of months, at least, I would say. Of course, we have like the technological framework to speed up that process, but getting somewhere with the 
product that's viable, then you need to polish it up a bit at least. Of course. Okay, so let's talk about the iteration of the genre itself. So, you know, everybody knows it's the biggest category in, in mobile games, but it's also probably the most saturated with pretty much everybody competing from Zynga to King to Rovia to mm. Playrex. So there's a lot of big players, a lot of small players and a big pie to be shared. But there is some innovation coming in. And how do you add that innovation? How do you look at the market and what kind of twist are you trying to bring? I mean, I played Lily's Garden. Is that your latest game? Yes, exactly. It's going for global launch on Thursday. Okay, so I was ahead of my time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so I think a really important aspect is to think of innovation as well in Hegelian fashion, like a recombinant ID, something that brings in something oftentimes recognizable into the puzzle genre. I think the opportunity for doing that is getting greater and greater over time, also as the audience matures. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the audience, first Candy Crush framework was really, really simple in terms of you had the saga progression. I think you had maybe two in-app purchases. We talked a lot about the end game dialogue and that was actually added after hard launch. And my point being here is that it's very, very locked down. It didn't open up that many opportunities beyond playing so you were very focused on progressing but over time as we see the audience maturing they also expect different things they like more deeper design something that gives them some sort of meaningful goals to strive for Mm -hmm. so let's talk about the sort of evolution of the puzzle genre as you mentioned and as we can see from the data it's, it's been pretty clear that the installs have been quite stable for a few years now but the revenue has been growing and you know as you mentioned candy crush saga has been growing their revenues for maybe seven years trade, which is just insane, while the downloads have been going down. So what factors do you think play into this? Mm, that's a big one. <laughs> I think one factor that I talk a lot to my colleagues about is that to some degree, I think the whole free-to-play market is quite immature. You get exploitative tactics and designs based on loss loss aversion and things like that in the industry, mainly, I think, because the scale is so big. So you get very quick returns from these tactics, but they're not necessarily a good way to build long-term customer relationships. So I think that has saturated the market a lot because you get these very quick returns on sometimes fairly, fairly poorly executed products. And then you have the big companies double down on offering the existing payer base more and more enticing features. Uh, do you think something that plays into that is just better understanding of your, I mean, you have a data scientist background. So do you think the understanding of how players behave is also playing into that? Because it helps to optimize the levels, of course. That's my analysis of it. And I think there is plenty of opportunity to build long-term relationships, but we mm-hmm. haven't really started to see that happen yet as much. Yes. So one thing that is on everybody's top of mind, of course, in games is is marketability and the CPIs basically, but the marketability is basically how to decrease the CPI and and how to decrease the risk early as possible. And we've seen games like Matchington Mansion just fire through the charts since last year. And part of it, maybe even a quite big part of it can be attributed to the marketability. I mean, they've been very creative with their creatives and then kind of, you know, trying everything and anything and and seen pretty tremendous growth. So do you guys have a tactile, do you have some kind of process where 
where you look at the marketability and see if the game is worth launching. Is that the first prototype where you see kind of how the core gameplay performs and then you decide to go forward? Or do you do any other kind of early marketing testing and things like that just to see how you can scale it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then you might get into these local minimums of uh, optimization where you're very quick to draw conclusions on, hey, this works because we see this KPI going up, but that's not necessarily a long-term impact of it. So things that are gradual, uh, which is, for instance, helping players move along from being extrinsically motivated to intrinsically motivated in doing the activity. That's like a long-term endeavor, which doesn't lend itself as easily to being measured. Mm. Can I ask one thing regarding the marketability? And as you said, you're just about to push Lily's Garden into global launch. So one thing that is happening is during soft launches, of course, you work on optimization of the game, you add more and more content to it and, and so forth, which is working with the retention and monetization KPIs. But the other part is the marketability and especially how do you ramp up the UA? And my question is, is like, how much do you invest into user acquisition, what test markets are using and, and are you doing anything different than the others? Because mm. just as a caveat, one thing that we've been seeing now is a lot of games are soft launching in US already where they can start measuring how they can scale once they go global. Yeah, I mean, we, we try a lot of things, as I mentioned, with this build, measure, learn cycle. Of course, uh, soft launch gives us uh, some indication of it. What we see generally, it's the same old truths, brand awareness, stuff like that, impacts the marketability, job Genre is a big one. The saturation on clickers and switchers, that, that's very clear that there are some genres being more competitive than others. So are you saying your creatives are different than with Matching Dimension? <laughs> because they're pretty wild. Uh, I think we uh, currently we have a, a mostly a traditional uh, approach where we use non-English speaking markets, for instance. For us, at least, it, it is more of a matter of, of being able to compare. So benchmarking. So since we've, uh, we, we do two or three launches per year we, we do have that benchmark in those markets so it's fairly simple to pick up on signals where we see that hey this game is gonna do roughly the same as another game or well this one definitely has promise then how much of that is creative optimization versus targeting versus the actual uh, characteristics of the game is still hard to disentangle i actually want to jump in here for a second because you're reminding me of something that we're seeing on our end mishka maybe you're seeing this too that creative is becoming an increasingly big part of the soft launch process you're not just testing for your monetization and retention metrics but you're also looking to see what are your best performing creative so that when you hit global launch you're kind of already going out there with your strongest formats are you doing anything like that at tactile is creative part of your soft launch process or is it something that kind of comes in later on yeah yeah it is definitely part of it and the, the benefit of doing it is you get fairly reliable numbers but we're definitely preparing or gearing up for hard launch personally i think the those creatives that work the best is where you have a consistent messaging so you have a whole funnel that is consistent in its messaging christoph your role as head of insights how does that lock into either kind of marketability or design where are you kind of looped in in the process consider it still uh, like a smallish company you do it all the time <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> or at least i poke my head in occasionally but to me as insights person i think it's very easy to make incorrect inferences so th that's one of the areas where i try to 
to support the teams the most from very simple confidence intervals to more advanced modeling and stuff like that. And how does that loop into the psychology, the motivation behind kind of playing puzzle games? A lot, I would say. That's an area where we probably haven't, or the industry probably hasn't experimented enough. Because if you set some sort of potential goal for the players already in the creative, I think that's a, that's a very promising avenue. So when I t- talk about psychology, I, I tend to be mostly grounded in self-determination theory with three dimensions of need satisfaction, where you have the need for competence, feeling competent, need for autonomy and the need for relatedness that people matter. One hope. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think uh, for puzzle games, in terms of need satisfaction, puzzle games are great at supporting uh, the competence dimension. Feel that you are progressing, you're getting better, you're improving your skills, you're competing with others to get benchmarks, etc. Et but if you look at those psychological needs, that's one area. And uh, what we may be seeing with Matchington and also Homescape in their creatives, they are maybe gearing towards more of that uh, autonomy supportive features so you know building stuff and customizing so if we want to tie it into psychology then I think this whole consistent messaging where you're very clear of what group are you trying to target with this or what kind of personality are you trying to target with ads that can most likely go a long way but again it's a lot of testing and research to own in on that so then I have to ask is there one psychological driver that's more powerful than another is competency kind of more or less powerful than autonomy or relatedness? I think it wholly depends. Generally, it's often harder to see the effects of relatedness. I mean, autonomy, that's now if we just talk about games, at least. MMOs, clear autonomy supportive frameworks, some relatedness. But if anything, it's the relatedness dimension that I feel, at least so far, has, hasn't been the most important one. So do we want to jump on the kind of an interesting question, which is, you know, purchase versus ads and then traditionally of course puzzle games are very in-app purchase driven so what's the position of ads in your games so previously we've had interstitials and rewarded video i mean just from the scale of things interstitials are less and less relevant every day as you all probably know but for rewarded videos that's an interesting aspect i mean they lend themselves perfectly for any kind of in-app purchase design don't they and i think you see a lot of uh, games using that as um, uh, you know watch an ad and get 100 coins etc etc but to me the more interesting aspect of rewarded video is when you actually try to use that in your design to introduce premium features to a wider audience a trial if you will so in introducing something to a wider audience i mean you can seed stuff and but that gets very on rails kind of where you you know click here to start this booster or whatnot whereas if you let players discover something by spending 30 seconds to watch an ad and then unlocking a particular feature. I, I think that has a lot of potential. So one thing that happens usually with ads, there are actually a few things. So, I mean, internally, when you're working with ads and you're primarily an in-app purchase studio or, or you know, you rely on in-app purchases, that's not the first thing that we tend to think about. But then, you know, it's usually from strategic perspective. The local VP of ads will come in and say like, listen, guys, you have to do it and you get some pressure. And the first thing that the game team says back is like, well, 
well, we don't want it to lower retention. Now, is that something that is not true at all? Or is there any case in that? What do you think? I think very little case for rewarded videos. Obviously, you're going to get the share of the audience interested in whatever is being presented. But if your product is strong enough, then they're likely to come back. And that, that share is, I mean, you know, the click-through rates on creative. So it's not very high. But um, I've seen some effects when we introduced interstitials. And that does make sense because you can hypothesize that there is some sort of attrition effect if you push it too far. Yeah. But basically, rewarded ads, no effect on retention, to your knowledge. Again, if your design is holistic enough that it is more of a natural feature trialing. <laughs> so basically where people can initiate themselves the ads and they're not initiated automatically on your face of 30 second video. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And then they get to try a feature and then they can see, oh, this was useful or this wasn't useful. <laughs> then you're probably not going to see an effect. But if you people find use in the designs that you make, then that, that can actually have a positive impact. Mm. So till date, it's been about 5 to 10% of revenue that developers are making through ads in puzzle games. Is that the case with you guys? Or are you optimizing your ad strategy so that you're generating more? Little higher share, I think. I don't have the numbers, but it's above 10% at least, if I remember correctly. Do you think that's likely to grow? I have an argument with a colleague here at IronSource where my claim is eventually ads are going to eat IAPs because people become less and less ready to pay for things and more and more ready to pay with attention. So you'll see more rewarded ads or more value exchange ads because people will just be more ready to pay with their eyeballs than they will with their credit card. And of course, my colleague disagrees with me vehemently. And he says, absolutely not. Not to mention, of course, that the amount of revenue you can generate from even a small percentage of users converting on IAP has traditionally dwarfed the amount of money that you can make with ads. Although this is obviously different when you kind of go into the hyper casual genre, but not getting into that. Do you guys project ad monetization taking a growing share of overall revenue? Or do you expect to kind of say the same? I would probably say it will stay the same in the scheme of things currently. But I think if you do it right, then you can drive both. We have seen some examples of that because of this feature introduction. That's the mechanism I'm, I'm thinking. So you are right. People are less prone to pay straight off the bat. But if properly introduced to a particular feature that is useful and makes sense for them in their uh, playing experience, then those ads can actually lead to commercials as well. Interesting. Do you want to jump onto the next section and talk about something known as the evolution of puzzle games uh, small, small topic <laughs> yeah small yeah, topic. Yeah, yeah. you've been doing puzzle games since they were on facebook right yeah so that's about 10 years am i correct yeah rough give or take a few yeah exactly because i remember making games for facebook and that was about 10 years ago so what were the biggest pivotal moment during this time span when puzzle games came on to ios in, in form of candy crush yeah. so what has happened since what were in your opinion sort of like the pivotal moments yeah so a lot of it is actually platform driven. So first Facebook, then mobile games that allowed for this kind of explosion or rapid growth where everyone had some sort of device where they could play. But to me, it's a little bit more interesting to talk about it from developer point of view, where I remember in the early days, we were almost exclusively looking at KPIs. So various metrics on organization, of course, retention, even some poor metrics like DAO over Mao. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were generally trying to find out, you know, what makes sense here. And what we got to, to a high degree was, you know, understanding the direction of the wind. Where 
sure the wind was blowing, but maybe not the climate as a whole, you know. So then, you know, developers turned to more of these behaviorist theories, Kahneman's seminal work on uh, thinking fast and slow and all the psychological biases and uh, that. And it, it was touted almost as guidelines for designing engaging games. But then we understood, hey, the wind is blowing that direction because people are doing this in this exact moment. So we were better at understanding particular decision points or um, actions that people take. But the long-term perspective isn't really applicable for behaviorist theories generally, at least from what I've found. And then the industry started to turn to more of these psychology of motivational frameworks like self-determination theory. You had uh, Scott Rigby's book coming out, Clue to Games, that was discussing a lot of the long-term impact of uh, need satisfaction. So I kind of see that as the journey where it was very mechanical initially, you know, building out with some more theoretical frameworks. And now at the point that, you know, games are being studied, you know, on par with, let's say, exercise or some other activity that we as humans do. Can I throw my sort of a pivotal moments just looking at the puzzle category from the side? Yeah. So I would kind of divide it up to five points. So I, w- I would start with 2012 with social and saga mechanics. So basically Candy Crush launching in 2012 and you had the close tie-in with Facebook and that was like really important that you have the saga map and you can see where your friends are going and you can send friend invites and it was kind of like a mobile game but still very tied to the Facebook platform. And then a couple of years later, a year and a half later, we kind of entered this sort of a resources and builders and Big Fish Games was making this sort of a game where when you play, you collect resources and you build something up. And that was what we thought would be the next thing. And then in 2014 came the companions and upgrades with the games like Best Fiends where you're playing the puzzle levels and you're investing into these sort of like an RPG characters. And it was a little bit like RPG, but it wasn't quite like that. And then we get into that 2015 and going to 2016 and kind of even now with your latest game, The Lazy Garden is like the collection and decoration that turn into narrative and decoration games. So those were kind of like my moments when I look at the feature sets and I look at the evolution of the games. It kind of feels like they were going towards one aspect and like with the resources and builders, it really reminded me of those hidden object games like we had back in Facebook where you complete hidden object levels and you get some resources and now you can build some stuff. But now we're actually going to totally different direction and narrative seems to be the way. So it feels like we've been in this step of narrative and decoration for quite a while. I mean, Playrix's games like the Fishdom and after that, the Homescapes came in 2016. So I think we're close to some kind of disruption. Yeah, maybe. But I'm thinking that it might be a lot about like survivorship bias. Because I mean, one of the games that existed on the King platform when I started was a game called Puzzle Saga, which had all these aspects of RPG and you level up your character and you explore worlds, fairly advanced ones. But my point here is that there has kind of always been these offshoots where you try to combine another metagame or another aspect to the core mechanic. And I'm not sure with Magic Dimension that it's, it's like a crazy road up the chart, but it's not really adding that much in terms of mechanics. Maybe it's more solidifying the point you're trying to make that builders and narrative seems to be a big thing. But then again, you have a lot of companies that haven't led to that 
pivotal change that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about something more easier. You mentioned the uh, different KPIs you were using, like the DAU to MAU ratio back in the days. What other KPIs that you're looking now versus what you were looking back then? What has become more important? Probably on the marketability side, a lot of KPIs, like the CTRs and the CPIs. Well, I mean, back in the performance marketing days of AdWords, that was already... But to me, I think a lot of the silly ones, they have dropped out of circulation to a degree. <laughs> but uh, other than that, it's more like refining the existing KPIs. So instead of looking at, let's say, average time spent across daily active users, we tend to look at time spent in the first session, seeing that that is you know, correlated to retention and stuff that actually gives us better signals, essentially. Then, of course, other engagement metrics are always good to keep an eye on. What I'm seeing more and more happen right now is that uh, we're detailing, let's say we segment the user base based on some activity metric, then we're looking more at those movements between the segments. That can be very enlightening. What about the demographics? You know, traditionally puzzle games have been seen as female first games and especially towards the a little bit of a matured female audience. Is that still the case or are we looking more at a wider range of demographics? I would say that a lot of the targeting is still on the marketing side done on US women around 35. Not 35 yet. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I think it's that immaturity again. If you better understand your user group, then you, I mean, gender, is that really the the main differentiator? Or is it more that, you know, you as a player like to collaborate and compete versus those who don't? I think demographics wise, segmentation is at least much more interesting when looking at behavioral Mm. metrics. So, So looking at behavioral metrics, what are the some behavioral differences that you've noticed? Again, if we go back to motivation of psychology, we can definitely see how features that promote competition or collaboration is well-liked among part of the user base, whereas others actually dislike those kind of features. So it all leads up to better personalization, I feel, where we can have the games themselves guide the players into areas that fulfill their needs to a high degree. Mm. I have to ask one thing that is traditionally one of the typical things for puzzle game players and casino game players, and that is that they play multiple of the same style of games. Like with slots games, the players might play four to five slots games at the same time. And that has been traditionally kind of the same thing with puzzle games is that once you run out of lives, you just open up the next game. Is that still the same thing where you can see in behavioral metrics? In terms of actual metrics, I think social play is one of the clearest. Either you like competing or collaborating or you don't. I play puzzle games as well. And it's basically like when you hit a stride, when you start crushing those levels one by one, and you feel that now you're getting into your groove and you're beating them. And at some point you kind of hit the wall and then you switch and then you start playing another one and then you go back to the previous one. And because of the dynamic tuning, it's actually become a little bit easier once you get back into it. So you get again on that stride. So I I feel like there might be a little bit to that. Yeah, to some degree. Of course, it holds for those super engaged players that just finished their lives and that segment exists. But I think a much bigger segment is those that have one focus game and then you switch focus game. So in a given week, you will see maybe a couple of switches or something among the user base. Of course, we can only understand that from our portfolio. So it's that big unknown out there. But it definitely feels like that to me, that there is a focus game for the demographic. Um, Shifting from that focus game is what you then see. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, a lot of these games, you get more lives by watching videos. And, you know, the session has prolonged quite significantly from the early days. It's not cut to five lives only, and that's it. And a lot of times you get the infinite lives and stuff like that. So that's more just there for whatever the lives thing. Mm. 
But let's jump into the uh, controversial thing is that is how do you stay ahead of the competition? The tactile is way smaller than King and Playrix and Peak. And when we look at the category as a whole, I mean, it is over 3 billion yearly. How do you kind of carve your sector, your segment, your niche out of that? Well, partly, I think as soon as you kind of hit that hyper growth, then things stall a bit, don't they? In terms of production pace and stuff like that. That's obviously something that is working out well for us. But to be more concrete, I would say that the two most important things to me to stay ahead of the curve is to be systematic and to think of the player first. It sounds very silly and simple, but if you keep working with that build, measure, learn process and record your findings, things that worked out as you expected and things that didn't, then you're already you know, running your knowledge generation processes and successfully. And that helps a lot because the biggest challenge isn't maybe the next big idea or the next big meta game that you can execute on the knowledge that you already gathered and understanding your customer base. What do they crave? What do they find? What do they appreciate? And then that in itself leads to going for these well thought through holistic designs rather than focusing on quick wins. I wanted to ask, it's good that you haven't read the prediction post that we wrote on puzzle games, but in that one, we kind of tried to analyze the three ways to get into this highly competitive market. And I'm very curious to hear your opinion because this is just an opinion. And what's your opinion on this opinion? So essentially, we found out based on the current market and then the history of it, not the future, but just what's been going on in this one. And that's kind of the sense of number one would be the sort of a Playrix model where the success in the category is driven by the metagame and the gameplay innovations that then result in that higher LTV. And you support that with the portfolio effect where you launch similar type of games where, you know, it's a brand. So the same character is now doing a home when he was doing a garden and so forth, as well as with the fish dome is kind of, you know, opens up the same type of game. So that's number one. The number two that we kind of identified was what you guys are sort of doing, if I understood correctly, and that is sort of a peak games model, where even though peak is quite substantial in terms of their revenues, they actually have very small and very nimble teams, around 15 developers or so, for even for their multi-hundred million dollar games. And that essentially speaks on what you were speaking, is that compact size allows you to focus and allows you to be very effective, allows your team to be very lean, allows you to do the right things. And also, you don't need that much production capabilities. You can just work hard and then do whatever needed, what's on the whiteboard and so forth. And also what they have is in their strategy. I mean, they they essentially have only tile blasters. And that kind of speaks of the focus as well is that they're focusing on the one type of mechanic where they're really learning how to perfect that mechanic and as well as how to serve that mechanic to their players. So they're understanding how their players play it by not changing the mechanic. And the third thing that we kind of looked at was Magic Dimension. And that is sort of innovation on the marketing side. So really looking at different ways to engage with the users. And of course, that lowers your CPI. And then suddenly you're able to acquire those much needed users in a very competitive category. So those were the kind of three things. And what do you think about that? It does make sense. All of it, actually. I mean, the first one, that's what I would categorize as, at least to some degree, is recombinant ideas. And um, I would say that it's getting a foothold, though. And the, all of these approaches then rely on at least having sizable budget. <laughs> so you wouldn't need some VC money or loans or something to, to actually get that foothold. Whereas I think if you think of a combination of ideas a little bit more than finding something, at least it would take something very new and transformative to make a considerable impact on the market. And that, that's very hard to bet on. Exactly. And that's why I was kind of thinking that there hasn't been any major new in a few years. It's, yeah. it's kind of been the same. So that's why I was expecting that something new is bound to happen when you look at the history of it. And the only new thing that 
that we saw last year was was matching to mansion, like truly new thing that was making waves and kind of seemed that the innovation had shifted from gameplay, from optimization, from franchise building to marketability. Mm, yeah, to, to a high degree, I agree. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and we should also consider that we haven't really seen that much changes in terms of the platforms we use either. So that allowed for an ecology of interesting stuff to breed. Mm. So do you want to finish it off with uh, with just a simple psychology question? <laughs> <laughs> Those can be the worst. No simple psychology questions? <laughs> so, um, this, is, this is something new. So we do use, look at different gamer models and gamer aspirations, but what are the sort of, of psychological theories or approaches that are popular in game design? And which ones are you currently using when designing your puzzle games? As well as why is understanding of these motivations important for a game design? So I'll start with the first part there. I mentioned a few already, but Csikszentmihalyi's uh, flow theory, that's always in vogue among, among game designers because it's very easy to approach, I think. And it does have empirical support. Maybe not every player is prone to get into this state. And often it's applied like in a mechanical fashion where skill and challenge are too tightly coupled. Um, randomness. Randomness can add to the fun because we as humans, we're not linear. But by definition, it's short term. So that's why I'm looking mostly at self-determination theory and started to look a little bit at theory of planned behavior as well. But the self-determination theory has provided a pretty good framework for understanding games from that psychological needs perspective. And I mentioned earlier also that, you know, puzzle games, they satisfy the need for competence, often brilliantly. But that also means that there is probably opportunity in designing autonomy supportive uh, features and also providing some sort of avenue for meaningful interaction uh, that's not just leaderboards. So in that way, it can help you in your design work. But to me, it also naturally shifts your perspective. So again, I mentioned the immature industry. One of the biggest signs of an immature industry to me is the word whales that is getting thrown around here and there. And, you know, focusing on your most valuable customers may seem like semantics, but that does shift your perspective. And, and all of a sudden, you're more interested in understanding what your customer base actually wants instead of, let's say, exploiting whales. So I think that the biggest thing to me is that it shifts perspective. Yeah, well, I can't comment on that. I, I, I don't know too much about the psychology of, of puzzle games, and I'm still too much in the, in the previous whale hunting. <laughs> I just admired in whale hunting. Yeah. Well, whale hunting. Yeah, you know, we, we work mainly on mid-core games and it is a pretty much a, a whale hunt. So, so. Yeah, but, but, but you can see my point that, I mean, even the word will block you from maybe a more positive way of thinking. Of course. And that's something that has been happening, of course, where even, you know, mid-core games have become more accessible and the audiences have grown and, and so forth. And it makes you think that these mental models, you kind of have to get out of your shell and then look out of the way sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, there's nothing wrong with valuable customers. That's uh, any business aspiration to a high degree. Then you're also framing them as people out there playing games and uh, try and go for that understanding of why does this matter to you? I mean, free-to-play games already is a hard industry because any puzzle game will have players saying, why do you keep making the level so hard for me? You're cheating. And mm. <laughs> while you don't have any sort of difficulty adjusting mechanism, it's just randomness. But already 
we start at a disadvantage where it's the player against the game. Whereas it's probably a better long-term situation if the player is not against the game, but you know, use the game as a, as a sort of leisure tool. I think we've interrogated you enough. <laughs> enough for the lightning round. Right, guys, this has been the most intellectual episode of Level Up I think we've ever had. You dropped Hegel, I think, within the first maybe 10 minutes and followed up swiftly with Kahneman. So yes, thank you very much, Christoph. And thanks everyone for tuning in. See you next episode. Thank you.